I hope you will turn in your Bibles to the passage that was read, John chapter 20. But I want to begin tangentially. Doubt has many sources. A long time ago when I was pastor of a church in Vancouver, we had quite a large number of college-age young people in the church, and the most vivacious and energetic of the whole lot was a young woman called Peggy. Stick Peggy at one end of the room and the other 99 at uh, the opposite end, and about 50% of the energy in the room was at Peggy's end. She was a student at the University of British Columbia. Uh, she could not think linearly. It's a good thing she wasn't studying engineering. She had the most amazingly tangential mind I have seen. But she was a devoted follower of Jesus. She loved the Lord. She loved to share her faith and, and was very open and frank about it everywhere. And she came to me after an evening service one Sunday night and said, there's a chap on the football squad. Now, this is North American football, not soccer, as they call it. It's not really football. It's sort of a number of 300-pound animals sort of going around a football field, you understand. This was that kind of football. There's a chap on the football field called Fred who is starting to express an interest in the gospel. He's asked me out. Should I go with him? I said, Peggy, be careful. You know, your heart can get snookered. By all means, share your faith widely. But if this turns into a romance, suddenly you might find yourself in, in, in a situation that you're not really going to be comfortable with as long as you're a follower of Jesus. Oh, I don't want to do that. I just want to share my faith. I said, fine, fine, go with him. Then bring him to see me. I have the gift of intimidation. <laughs> but you couldn't suppress Peggy. Nope. The next Saturday night, I was late in my study, 10.30 or so at night, and, and knock, knock, knock on the door, and in comes Peggy. And with, him is, with her is this football hunk. Hi, Don. This is Fred. He wants to meet you. That was stretching the truth. I, I could tell just by looking at him that he, uh, he was enduring me to get to Peggy. That, that, that was the kindest way I could put it. But we went out at 10.30 or quarter to 11 at night to, to, to the International House of Pancakes. I know it sounds bizarre, but it's North America. IHOP. And, and there we sat down and ordered some things and started to eat and talk. And I was trying to get to know Fred and to put him at his ease. And found out he had no background in Christian things at all. Never had a Bible in his hand before Peggy stuffed one in. The next week, again, same time, duck, 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 in they came, out to the IHOP. And this time, he had a whole list of questions. So we worked through the questions. I assigned him things to read, suggested chapters and books and bits and pieces of this and bits and pieces of that. We finished about two in the morning. Next Friday night, Saturday night, duck, 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 Fred came back. Another list of questions. Thirteen weeks. What this was doing to my Sunday sermons, I have no idea. At the end of thirteen weeks, he said to me, now you must understand, he were, was as dour and as linear as she was vivacious and tangential. He said to me, all right, I'll become a Christian. And he really did become a Christian. He was shortly baptized, and today he is the father of grown children and who have gone on to, to, to serve the Lord, and he is deacon of a Baptist church in, in the lower mainland of British Columbia. Now, Fred's initial approach, doubting everything, was grounded, at least in part, by bone ignorance. He just didn't know anything. Nothing. He approached the subject skeptically, in large part, because the subject had never been explained to him. But sometimes doubt is grounded in moral choice, rather than ignorance. Here's a passage from the famous atheist Aldous Huxley's book, Ends and Means, first published in 1937. I found very similar passages in in Michel Foucault, one of the fathers of postmodernism, but this one is perhaps a little clearer, so let me read this one. For myself, Aldous Huxley writes, 
The philosophy of meaninglessness, which he was pushing at the time, was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. The supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was an admirably simple method of confronting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. Well, at least he's honest. In this sense, doubt in Michel Foucault and in Aldous Huxley and in many others is stimulated at least in part by a desire for increased sexual freedom. Let's be quite frank. In some cases, in a broken and fallen world, doubt is partly the rite of passage. Some young person grows up in a Christian home and is in a secure Christian church and learns all the right kinds of things, then goes off to university and suddenly discovers that the world is even bigger than he or she thought. Some lecturer in sociology says, So, Mary, uh, you're a Christian, are you? Yes. Your parents are Christians? Yes. Do you think that that's maybe why you're a Christian? Well, it's had some part to play, but... Uh, oh, now, wait a minute. Here's Abdul over here. He's a Muslim, isn't he? Yes. His parents are Muslim? Yes. Do you think that plays some part in why Abdul is a, is a Muslim? Well, uh, yes, I, I, I suppose so. So you're a Christian because your parents are Christians, and he's a Muslim because his parents are Muslim. Isn't that right? And the questions multiply and multiply, and they can become very crushing. Do you find answers? Do you dig? Do, do you talk about these things? Do you work them through? Or do you just shrink into a little corner somewhere, and at most your, your faith is a private option? Sometimes doubt is triggered not by a massive moral choice or by growing up. It's triggered by 10,000 atomistic choices. I've met men, for example, who, who have walked with the Lord for a long time and brought up their families in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and, and, and are full of confidence for many years. And then the pressures of their business moving up now just above middle management to upper middle management, the long hours they're putting in, these things begin to squeeze out any Bible reading or any real prayer. And suddenly they never talk about their faith anymore. And, 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 and at most, family devotions, if there are any, are conducted by the wife because he's late at the office, do you see? And then somewhere along the line, three or four years out, he's, he's skipping church so regularly because, you know, he really does have to have some downtime with all that time he's putting in, in the office because, because, after all, he's trying to make a good living for the family, too, isn't he? And be a witness there. Then he discovers that one of the secretaries in the pool is, is really very, very sympathetic, whereas his own wife at home is, is a bit distant these days. And a couple of years later, he wakes up in bed with the wrong person. Gets up, looks at himself in the mirror and says, I don't believe all that rubbish anyway. Why not? Has there been some deep, principled overthrowing of the evidence? Some massive moral choice? No, 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 no. 10,000 tiny choices will damn you. Sometimes it's the product of um, a really distorted, dysfunctional family. Sometimes it's the product of a lot of different things. What's my point in all of this? The thing is that all of these sorts of causes of doubt are talked about in some way or other in Scripture. And, and there are different solutions to them. The person you see who takes 10,000 little choices and finds himself right on the very steep edge of the cliff needs to repent. It's not a whole lot of information he or she needs. It's repentance. And the person with, with massive, massive ignorance 
needs a whole lot of information. How you go about addressing doubt, you see, really does depend a bit on what has caused the doubt in the first place. Now, this passage is dealing with the doubt of Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus. But as we think our way through it, we must understand that this passage does not address every kind of doubt. So our first task must be to understand what kind of doubt this is that the passage is addressing. Other kinds of doubt are dealt with elsewhere in the Bible. But what is going on here? Now, in this account, it's important to remember the setting. Jesus has been crucified, and quite frankly, his own disciples had not expected it to happen. They just didn't have a category for a crucified Messiah, a crucified Lord. That, that to them was incomprehensible. They thought Jesus would triumph. Kings win, especially ones that can perform miracles. So that even after Jesus is dead and in the tomb, they're not saying, yes, I can hardly wait till Sunday. They are deeply discouraged. But on that first resurrection day, reports came in of Jesus appearing to the women. Lo and behold, the tomb was empty. He appeared to Peter in private, at least so he said, and then to two disciples as they walked home on the road to Emmaus. And then eventually on that first Sunday to all the twelve, except that Judas, the betrayer, was dead now and Thomas wasn't there. And that brings us then to our passage. First, the cry of a disappointed skeptic. Now, Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. What kind of doubt is this? Well, it's not the doubt of a philosophical materialist. That is, the kind of person who just does not believe that there is anything in the entire universe and beyond, save matter and energy and time and space. That's it. There is nothing more. Thomas is not a philosophical materialist. He's a devout, first century Jew. He believes in the God of the Old Testament. He believes that God has made everything. He believes that he's responsible before God. He believes that such a thing is right and wrong. He doesn't think that he's just come out of statistical accidents. It's not that kind of doubt. What kind of doubt is it? This is the doubt of someone who has been through the most intense religious experience and now feels deceived. He has really believed that Jesus is the Messiah. Earlier in John 11, he is one of the heroic ones that is prepared to die with Jesus. But he has no category deep down, finally, for a crucified Messiah. He just doesn't understand that. And now, with Jesus dead, his dreams of the dawning of a messianic kingdom of justice, of a utopian era when, when finally righteousness would prevail and God would be God, are all shattered. And he listens to these claims of a resurrected Jesus and he thinks, nice for some, good if it's true. But you know, I had pinned so much on him and I am so disappointed, I am not going down that road again. Here is the cry of a disappointed skeptic. For you see, the Bible does constantly distinguish between faith and gullibility. The Bible encourages faith. It never encourages gullibility, as we shall see. That is, believing every religious notion that comes along. And, and Thomas understood that. He doesn't want to be gullible and just believe it because others are saying it's so. I mean, it would be so much nicer to believe that, wouldn't it? Maybe they've talked themselves into it. Maybe they've had a few hallucinations. I mean, after all, there's been quite a lot of stress, hasn't there? You can talk yourself into things, can't you? And sometimes you can just be duped by frank manipulators. A number of years ago, in California, there was a peculiar faith healer by the name of Popoff. I'm not speaking against the notion that God can heal people if he wants to. That's just not the issue. But this particular scoundrel, I use the term advisedly, had developed a, a shtick. 
when people came into the meetings, he would say in the middle of the assembly, the Lord is telling me there is a woman, row J, seat 46, she has back pain, let her come forward and be healed. And sure enough, there was a woman in J46 who had back pain and she'd come forward. Well, of course, the press glommed onto this pretty quickly and tried to find collusion. So they would collar these people afterwards that he called forward. And they all denied that there was any collusion whatsoever. <clears throat> but ABC, American Broadcasting Corporation, nevertheless was suspicious. They noted that Popoff had a hearing aid. Now, what a faith healer is de doing with a hearing aid is an issue that I won't address. <clears throat> And they had some suspicions. So they went in there with a tiny, tiny mini-cam and a radio scanner. Now, for the technologically challenged amongst us, a radio scanner is a unit that goes back and forth across all the frequencies of radio waves and locks onto the strongest signal. Because what was happening, it turned out, was this. As people came into this big assembly, they were given prayer cards by various attendants and encouraged to put down their concerns if they had anything to, 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 to be prayed about. And some would put down, I've just been diagnosed with a vicious melanoma. I only have six weeks to live. And it turned out, as later inspection showed, those would go promptly into the waste bin. But if somebody put down something that sounded the slightest bit plausible as a psychosomatic disease, then, then Mrs. Popoff, one of the attendants, would note where this person sat, W for woman, J46. And then in the middle of the meeting, she had a little radio herself, which is the signal the scanner locked onto, that went into not a hearing aid, but a radio receiver. So on national television, we saw, first of all, Popoff saying, the Lord is telling me, the Lord is telling me there's a woman in J46, she has back pain. And then they played it again. Oh dear, we've got one, uh, a woman, uh, J46. The Lord is telling me, the Lord... Well, I have to tell you, his ministry popped off. At least for a short while. I, a few years later, I was back in California and he was doing it again. And um, Which only proves that people have short memories and an excess of gullibility. For you see, the tragedy of the situation was not only that the guy was a crook. My deepest regret is that it wasn't Christians who exposed him. We have a vested interest in the truth. No, the, the, the biggest tragedy of the whole thing is that many of the people that attended his meetings were sincere Christians. Being snookered by a charlatan. Because Christians, too, can be too eager to believe anything. Whereas the Bible does not encourage us to be gullible. It encourages discernment. It wants us to believe what is true. In any case, Thomas was not going to be snookered. So what he asked for is the most personal and concrete demonstration that this ostensible resurrected apparition, this, this apparently resurrected Jesus, that he would have some genuine physical continuity with the Jesus who was publicly put in the tomb. No vision, no mystical notion, no just empty tomb. No, I want to have the most concrete physical evidence that the Jesus who was put in the tomb is the Jesus who came out. When people were crucified in the ancient world, they were either hung with ropes or nails to a cross. And as they hung there, they experienced terrible muscle spasms until they died. But in Jesus' case, not only did he have nails, that was done in some cases, that wasn't all that rare. But, but, but in, in Jesus' case, he had a special wound that virtually no one in the ancient world received. Because people died finally by suffocation on the cross, they pulled with their arms and pushed with their legs to enable them to breathe, and then the muscle spasms would start and they would collapse. If for some reason the soldiers wanted you to die a little more quickly, they'd come along and simply smash your legs. And then you couldn't push anymore. You'd die of suffocation in a few minutes. But when they got to Jesus, they discovered that he was already dead, so they never broke his legs. Instead of, them, instead of that, one of them took a short javelin and shoved it up under his ribcage but he had a gaping wound in his side and the blood and water flowed out. The blood and the fluid from the pericardium. So Thomas says, 
unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Here's a man then who has lots of doubt, but it's also in some ways admirable because he does not want simply to be the next gullible religious twit. Here's the cry of a disappointed skeptic. Then second, the adoration of an astonished skeptic. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, that's how Jesus had appeared the last time. He had never done anything like that before his death. Suddenly appearing in touchable form in a closed and locked room. In some way, this resurrected body could do some strange things. And it, it, it suddenly appeared again. And he said, peace be with you. It was a standard greeting, but this side of the cross, it was pregnant with extra meaning. Here was peace with God, peace with the forgiveness of your sins, peace amongst yourselves. And then, although apparently he hadn't been present when Thomas spoke, he, he, he knows clearly what Thomas said, and he turns to him and he says, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now we need to think about Thomas's confession here because it is very strange. Doesn't it strike you as, as being a confession beyond what the, the evidence warrants? Why doesn't he just say, you are alive! Or, oops! Or, can you explain how that happened? I mean, why does he leap from the resurrection to my Lord and my God? That's, that's a big leap, isn't it? What warrants that? Well, you need to understand in the first instance that there are some explanations given that don't really stand up very well. I'm not from Scotland. My accent declares that pretty straightforwardly. But I would like to know if in Scotland you have friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on your door from time to time. Do you? Yes? Well, there are two standard Jehovah's Witness explanations of this, of this passage. One of them says that what Thomas really said was, oh, My Lord! My God! Now, I don't know how plausible you find that reading, but it's very difficult to imagine any first century Jew saying that. I mean, people in every race, in every culture, at every time, swear from time to time. But to swear quite so blatantly on the mouth of a first century devout Jew, not very likely. Moreover, it doesn't deal fairly with that little word, and. Even if by some great stretch of your imagination, you, you could imagine that Thomas said, my Lord, my God. Can you imagine that becoming, my Lord and my God? No, this is confession. It's adoration. And that's what makes it so strange. Why does he confess so much? Well, then you must remember that he's had a whole week to think about it. What was playing in his head? He would only have to go back in his memory just a few days to remember the kinds of things that Jesus had said on the night that he was betrayed and went to the cross. He said, for instance, in Thomas's hearing, Have I been with you, Philip, such a long time, and yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Undoubtedly, the disciples, when they heard this, said to themselves things like, Deep, deep, another deep one. I'm sure it means something, but we can't confess our ignorance, and this does sound a bit over the top, but it's the Master, so we'll keep our mouths zipped. But now, this side of the resurrection, what does it look like now? And they could remember that just a few months earlier, Jesus had said that outrageous thing recorded in John chapter 8, before Abraham was. I am. Abraham had been dead for 2,000 years. 
And I am was the name that only God uses in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying it. So you see, Thomas is certainly remembering all of these things that Jesus has said, and now he sees him alive with the most concrete proofs that the pre-death Jesus who died on the cross and went into the tomb is the same as the resurrection Jesus. And, and, and you can imagine what has gone through his brain. Could it be that the disciples are right? Could it be that Jesus has risen from the I don't believe it. It's not possible. But, but maybe it, it is. Well, if it is, what, what, what would it mean? I mean, do you worship a dead man who's come back to life? Oh, but, but he said that he that had seen him had seen God. Is that possible? No, no, it can't be. No, I've got to see the scars myself. But, but suppose it's true. He's had a whole week to think like this, do you see? And then it's not just the accounts in John's Gospel, but the accounts that are given in the rest of the Gospels as well, where Thomas was clearly present. Do you remember the great scene reported in Matthew and Mark where Jesus is speaking in a crowded house? They're just squashed in. No seats or anything. They're just all squashed in. And a, a paralytic is brought to the setting because Jesus has performed some really remarkable miracles. He's, he's brought there by four of his buddies who are carrying him on some sort of little pallet. They can't get through the crowd at all. Places jammed. Oh, wait your turn. Wait your turn. The master's speaking. Just, just shut up. But we have a paralyzed friend. Oh, it's your turn. Let him finish. So they climbed up on the outside stairs that were typical of the flat-roofed houses of the day and they listened carefully for where Jesus was speaking and started taking off the tiles. Pretty soon, the crowd that wouldn't give way out of courtesy and politeness gives way because a bed is coming down on their heads. That's enough to make you move back. And so suddenly this, this, this pallet is lowered in front of Jesus and there's sort of a scramble to get back a bit. And then this paralytic is, is in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, My son, your sins are forgiven. Well, the religious authorities are not too pleased with that. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they say. It's a fair question, isn't it? Supposing, God forbid, supposing on your way home tonight you were mugged, attacked, perhaps sexually assaulted, left half dead, find yourself two days later in, in a hospital, bandaged up and psychologically and physically shattered. Supposing then I came to your bedside and I said, Molly, I have good news for you. I have found your attackers, and I have forgiven them. What would you say to me? Wouldn't you say, you don't have the right. You're not the one that was assaulted. I'm doing this line. What, what do you mean you can forgive them? It's only the party that's been offended that can forgive. That's exactly right, isn't it? That's part of the post-Holocaust literature. One of the most moving books I have read on the Holocaust was written by Simon Wiesenthal. It's called The Sunflower. All of his enemy was, all of his family was wiped out in the Holocaust. All of them. He was the only one who survived. Toward the very end of the war, he was in a work gang connected with Auschwitz. A scarecrow. And suddenly, he was pulled out of a line and pushed into this room where there was a wounded German soldier, just 19 or 20, clearly with a wound that was going to prove fatal. It, it was a very serious wound. And this soldier had asked to speak to a Jew before he died. And in the peculiar providence of God, Wiesenthal was pulled out and shoved into that room. The young German soldier asked Wiesenthal to forgive him. To forgive him not only for the things that the Nazis had done more generally, but that he himself had actively participated in, in brutalizing Jews. Wiesenthal reasons in his mind, without saying a word, pages and pages of reflection in this book, compressed into a few seconds. Surely only the offended party is able to forgive. The most offended parties of the Nazis are dead. If the offended parties are dead, then what right do those who are living have to pronounce forgiveness? Therefore, there is no forgiveness for the Nazi. And without
without saying a single word, he turned and walked out of the room. Deeply troubled by his own activity, he then wrote to a substantial number of ethicists, mostly Jewish ethicists around the world, and described what he had done in the closing hours of the Second World War and asked if he was right. And you see, at one deep level, he was right. Only the offended party can forgive. But he had forgotten one thing. In the Hebrew Bible, when David commits his terrible sin of adultery and murder, eventually he's found out and he repents, and then he writes Psalm 51. And amongst the things he says in addressing God is, Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, at one level, that wasn't true. At a merely historic level, it was a pile of rubbish, in fact. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had certainly sinned against her husband. He had sinned against the baby in the womb that she conceived, who eventually died. He had certainly sinned against the high command of the military, using them for corrupt purposes. He had sinned against the covenant community. It's, it's just, he sinned against his own family. It's, it's difficult to imagine anybody that he hadn't sinned against. Yet he has the cheeks to say against you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. But at the deepest level, David was exactly right. Because in all of our sinning, the party most offended is always God. That's what makes sin, sin. We so easily think that, that the bad things we've done, slightly naughty, is because we've stepped on people's toes at the horizontal level. But don't you see? When you cheat on your income tax, the most offended party is God. When you sneak to the pornography parts of the web, the most offended party is God. When you nurture bitterness, the most offended party is God. Always the most offended party is God. Because we were made by him and for him. He is always the most aggrieved party. Which is why in the Bible, finally, only God can forgive sin. Oh, I know there's got to be forgiveness at the horizontal level amongst us. But at the end of the day, what we must have is forgiveness by God. The most offended party, the most aggrieved party. Or we have nothing. And now Jesus says to this paralytic... My son, your sins are forgiven you. No wonder, then, the opponent said, who can forgive sins but God alone? What kind of outrageous claim is implicit here? But Thomas, in thinking this, must now say, yes, yes, that's right. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And he cries, my Lord and my God. There may be another whole element here, too. It is not spelled out in this text, but many Jews in the first century did go through this sort of reasoning. The Apostle Paul unambiguously did when he became a Christian. The point is that the Bible taught that, that anyone who dies on a cross, on a tree, is cursed by God and human beings both. He's a scoundrel. He, the assumption is he deserves to die. and This is a public disgrace. So from Paul's point of view, before he became a Christian, the, the Christians were going around talking about this crucified Messiah. That made no sense at all. As far as Paul was concerned, before he became a Christian, Jesus had to be corrupt. He was condemned by God himself. He, he, he had been condemned by the courts, condemned by God. He was a damned malefactor. That's what he was. And now they're pro projecting him as the Messiah? It can't be. But once Paul had met Jesus resurrected on the Damascus Road. Then Jesus was vindicated. Vindicated by God. So he couldn't have been a damned malefactor. Then why did he die? If he wasn't condemned by God, where was the point of the death? But he was condemned by God. But not for his own sins. And now the rereading of the Old Testament that he undertakes is so powerful. He understands all of those animals that, that die in substitute for us. 
on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippurim, on the Day of Atonement, a bull and a goat, giving up their lives to pay for our sin. Well, a bull and a goat can't really do that. It's just an animal. And suddenly the words of the Christians quoting Old Testament scriptures began to make sense. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. I don't know if Thomas had got quite that far in his thinking at this juncture. But certainly later Jews did. That was part of how they become Christians. They came to understand that when Jesus died, this wretched death on the cross, the resurrection vindicated him. Which meant he couldn't have died for his own sin. Then for whose sin was he dying? And the deepest and richest and fullest understanding of the cross and all of its connections with the Old Testament flowed freely from the brute fact of the resurrection. Moreover, you can't help but notice the little word, my. This is not a liturgical response, our Lord and our God, or the Lord and the God. It's my Lord and my God. For you see, you can hear preaching till the cows come home. You can read all the books on the resurrection that you can imagine. You, you can become convinced of the historical facticity of the resurrection. But somewhere along the line, you really don't become a Christian until you bow before this Jesus and say, My Lord and my God. And that brings me to the last point. The example of a converted skeptic. Verses 29 to 31. Verse 29, I fear, is sometimes misunderstood. Let me read it to you. Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What is Jesus saying here? The passage is often understood to mean something like this. All right, Thomas, I provided you with the evidence so you believed. Good for you. I mean, that's, that's, that's not bad. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you're a believer now. That, that, that's fine. But it would have been a jolly lot better if you would believe without the evidence. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. The best faith is faith without evidence. Just believe. That's the way the passage is regularly understood. There is no way on God's green earth that that's what John meant when he wrote these lines. No way. It just doesn't fit the context at all. Now, there's something deeper going on, but we can get at it best, I think, if we remind of ourselves of another passage about the resurrection. This one is Paul writing, 1 Corinthians 15, written earlier than this. And he talks about the resurrection, too, to some people who are having a hard job believing that there's any sort of resurrection at the end, and even beginning to cast doubt on whether Jesus had risen from the dead. So, so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, teases out what it would mean if Jesus has not risen from the dead. All right, he says. Let's work this one out. Suppose Jesus has not risen from the dead. What does this mean? Number one, he says, the apostles and the other witnesses are all a bunch of liars. Because, you see, they're the ones that have testified, they've borne witness to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. They're either fools, or they're suckers, or they're charlatans, but they're not reliable witnesses if, in fact, Jesus has not risen from the dead. And he goes on to say, and it's not just them, but there were up to 500 people that saw Jesus risen from the dead. And some of them, writing 25 years later, he says, are still alive. Go and interview them for yourself. Become convinced. But you must understand that every single one of them is either an idiot or corrupt. If, in fact, Jesus has not risen from the dead, when they claim they've seen him, they've touched him under different circumstances, in the south, in the north, in Galilee, they've eaten with him, and, 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 and they are convinced he was alive. Moreover, the authorities couldn't produce the body. The tomb really was empty. They couldn't squash this, this talk of the resurrected Jesus. No, 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 no. The first thing you must understand, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, he says is that the apostles are liars. The second thing he says, your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. Now what he means by that is, according to the Bible, we are a guilty people. The, the, the resurrection demonstrates that Christ's sacrifice 
has been accepted. That, that's the basis of our forgiveness of sins. But if, if, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then what was he dying on the cross for? Maybe he was just a damned malefactor. Maybe, maybe it was all pointless after all. Maybe Thomas' initial reactions were right. In which case, we're still a guilty people before God. And then he says the most amazing thing. He says, you are of all people most to be pitied. Do you hear that? The Bible never ever, not once, the Bible never ever encourages us to believe something that is not true. Not once. The Bible never takes the stance, well, whether it's true or not, it doesn't really matter so long as you believe that it's true. Not once. One of the bishops in England not long ago was asked, supposing somehow there were incontrovertible evidence to show that Jesus really, really didn't resurrect. Maybe his body was found and by some flukish array of, of, of evidences, you could really prove that this was Jesus. What would this do to your faith? Oh, he said, nothing. I mean, he's risen in my heart. That's not Paul's answer. Paul's answer is, if you believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, when in fact he's not, then your faith is empty, it's futile, and you are simply to be pitied because you're believing something that isn't true. The Bible never ever encourages us to believe something that isn't true. Now, I know that goes against the grain in, in, in many postmodern circles today where you're supposed to, to, to believe as a matter of personal subjective choice. If you go onto the streets of Edinburgh and ask ordinary people, what is faith? The gist of their response is that faith is a personal subjective choice. You have your faith and I have my faith and there's this faith and there's that faith and, and it's got nothing to do with science or evidence or truth. It's just my, my, my faith. That's not Paul's understanding of faith. Faith's validity for Paul depends at least in part. It depends on other things, but it depends at least in part on the truthfulness of faith's object. Which is why in Scripture, faith is encouraged when truth is explained and defended. And faith is actively discouraged if its object is something false. Paul can openly say, if you come to the conclusion that what I'm telling you is a bald-faced lie or a huge historical mistake, then don't believe it. Because if you believe something that isn't true, you're just to be pitied. You're not to be admired. Like the bishop, you're to be pitied. Now, that's common in the New Testament. Faith has many nuances in the New Testament. But I want to tell you, with every fiber of my being, when Christians, whether I or anyone else, encourage people to believe, we do not do so simply because we think it will be psychologically good for you. Or because it's a pretty decent option amongst the various options that are out there. Give it a try. Yes, we, we do want you to close with Christ. But the most fundamental reason why we want you to trust Christ is because... It is an historical fact that he rose from the dead. With all the connections that go with it. And if that's not the case, don't believe it. No matter how psychologically advantageous. And if it is true, then it is the deepest folly not to believe it. That is why Christians insist still on talking about the truth. What else can we do? It may great today in some years, but, but the very text of Scripture won't allow us to go in any other direction. If he did not rise from the dead, I, I don't want to believe it and just be dismissed as, of all people, most to be pitied. And if he did rise from the dead, it is the deepest folly, the worst danger, not to believe it. Now put yourself in this verse again. Because you have seen me, you have believed. You see? He came to believe because he was given concrete evidences. He was enabled to see and touch. He belonged to that first generation when Jesus actually showed up. But Jesus knew full well that there were others coming along after him who would never see Jesus resurrected. I've never seen Jesus resurrected. Never have. Neither of you. 
Oh, there may be some people who've seen sort of visions of things, but, you know, visions are pretty intangible. You, you haven't put your fingers in the nail prints. You haven't put your fist into the gap in his side. Have you? So on what is your faith based? Your faith, in some measure, is based on the witness to history. Biblical Christianity is an historical religion. I don't know how to get this across any other way than by making some comparisons. Supposing you could prove, I don't know how, but supposing you could prove that Gautama the Buddha never lived, would you destroy Buddhism? No, of course not. Of course not. Not at all. Because there is nothing about Buddhism that depends on the physical existence of Gautama. The system is defended on the basis of the worldview and the frame of reference and the ethical structures and so on that it advocates. So go to India. Supposing you could prove that one of their chief gods, Krishna, never lived. I don't know how you could prove it, but supposing you could, would you destroy Hinduism? No, of course not. Hinduism believes that there's one fundamental truth that emerges in all reality, including millions, quite literally millions of gods, give up Krishna, you go down to a Shiva temple or somebody else. You don't destroy Hinduism that way. They come to Islam. And you go to visit your friendly neighborhood imam, and you ask him this question. Sir, do you believe that Allah, blessed be he, had he so chosen to do so, could have given his final revelation to somebody other than Muhammad? Now, initially, he will probably misunderstand your question and be rather irritated. No, listen, listen. We believe that Abraham was a prophet and Moses was a prophet and, and Jesus was a prophet, but the final prophet, the greatest prophet, was Muhammad. And you reply, well, you, you, you must understand I'm a Christian. I, 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 don't, I don't think that myself, but that's not my question. I, I'm asking another question. Do you believe that Allah, had he chosen to do so, could have given his final revelation to somebody else other than Muhammad? Had he chosen to do so? It's a hypothetical question. Then, of course, the imam will reply, well, of course, Allah is Allah. He can do whatever he wishes. The revelation is not Muhammad. He can give it to whomever he will. We believe that the final prophet was Muhammad, but he could have given it to anyone. Now come to Christianity. Do you believe that God could have given his final revelation to someone other than Jesus? In a Christian context, the sentence itself, the question itself is just incoherent. Because Jesus is the revelation. If you take away Jesus, the way I've hypothetically taken away Gautama the Buddha, you don't have any Christianity left. None. In fact, if you take away Jesus' resurrection from the dead, an historical event, you don't have any Christianity left. None. None. God has graciously disclosed himself to us in events, in space-time history. Real events with real witnesses. And our access to these events is in the witnesses. Do you see that? Now, there is also the work of the Spirit in our lives to enable us to see. I, I understand that. And, and there is the testimony of good deeds done by Christians. I understand that. And God, God works in all kinds of mysterious ways so that we, we sometimes come to believe for sometimes really silly reasons. But God in His providence enjoys, enjoys bringing you to faith because you've had an emotional crisis in your life and you're looking out for something and God meets you in your need. Yes, yes, yes. But at the end of the day, once you've got all of your faith together, you cannot legitimately believe in the Christian way unless you believe certain things happened in history that God disclosed, including the resurrection from the dead. And our access to that is witnesses. Whose witness then has been written down? Found in the pages of this book. Including the witness of Thomas. Now you see how verse 29 is connected to the last two verses. Thomas, you believed. You know what, Thomas? That's a great thing. But blessed rather are those who do not see, but have believed in very part because you have borne witness, because you have seen. Don't you understand? That's how the book ends. 
Jesus did many other miraculous signs which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. These very things, including what Thomas saw, his handling, his touching, so that he becomes part of that evidentiary chain, that witness claim. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If this is your very first time in a Christian church, you must find all of this very, very strange. I don't want you to do anything silly or rash. What I do encourage you to do is read the Gospels yourself. Talk to Christians. See the multiplying evidence that God himself has graciously given in history that Christ Jesus rose from the dead. And then pile on that the transformed lives that came about it because he had risen from the dead and because he forgives sins and because he pours out his spirit and transforms lives. Pile on that as well. And remember that he is not only the crucified Messiah, he's the God-man. He is worshipped by Thomas, my Lord and my God. He is one with God in creation and he will be our final judge. And I beg of you, do not go away from this Jesus. You must bow the knee to him. You will answer to him on the last day. And he has given so much of himself, all of himself, in death. And graciously provided the historical witnesses, including Thomas, to bring us to believe the truth. That he died and rose again. That we might be forgiven and transformed and accepted with his father. There have been a lot of new hymns written in the last few years. Some of them outstanding. This one by Christopher Idle. If Christ had not been raised from death, our faith would be in vain. Our preaching but a waste of breath, our sin and guilt remain. But now the Lord is risen indeed. He rules in earth and heaven. His gospel meets a world of need. In Christ we are forgiven. If Christ delay within the tomb, then death would be the end. And we should face our final doom with neither guide nor friend. But now the Savior is raised up. So when the Christian dies, we mourn. Yet look to God in hope. In Christ the saints arise. If Christ had not been truly raised, his church would live a lie. His name would never more be praised. His words deserve to die. But now our great Redeemer lives. Through him we are restored. His word endures. His church revives. In Christ, our risen Lord.